0: We're in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 4. And if you were with us last week, we, we were really taking a look at weapons that the enemy uses against God's people. Now, Nehemiah is a historical book, and, and the bottom line of Nehemiah is God moves by His power and uses His people to display His glory. Many people teach Nehemiah as a book on leadership. A lot of practical applications there for leadership, but also it's a very good book when you're looking at spiritual warfare, particularly in, in chapters 4 through 6, on how the enemy likes to use weapons, tactics, whatever you want to call them, to, to stop or halt God's people from moving forward in faith. Now, last week, if you remember, I talked about there are three common enemies to God's people. The first one is our own sinful flesh. You and I, when we received the Lord Jesus Christ, we were given the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit indwells every believer. The however in that is that Spirit indwells sinful flesh, and suddenly there's a battle on. And the victory in that battle is who you decide to let reign and rule in your life. Will you let the Spirit reign, the truth of Christ reign, or will you let the lust of the flesh reign in your life? So we have this battle with our sinful flesh. Also the world, the world system. This is the system of the world that is against Christ and all that He stands for. And the enemy of our souls uses temptation from the world, our sinful flesh, to trap us, to hold us. The world wants to tempt us. We're to stand strong in Christ. And then you have the third enemy, which is Satan himself. He's a powerful foe. He's a fallen angel, and Satan has one goal. He cannot have your soul, but boy, does he want you to fall into sin. He wants to tempt you away from Christ. He wants to shame the name of Jesus Christ. He wants to shame your family, shame this church. That is his goal. He hates it when we're faithful, when we move forward in faith. And last week we saw that there are weapons that the enemy uses, and the first weapon was ridicule, criticism. He loves to lie. He loves to ridicule you. He wants to make sure he makes you think you're worth nothing to God, that you're weak. He ridicules God's work, God's people. Second weapon we looked at was intimidation. If the ridicule doesn't work and and that doesn't stop you, then he's going to intimidate you, make you think that you're going to somehow be harmed, so you'll pull back, not move forward in faith. That's always his tactic. He's a liar and the father of lies. And this morning we're going to see two more weapons that the enemy uses against God's people because he does not want to see the work move forward. So what are the weapons that the enemy uses against God's people? Today we'll see the third one, but it's point one. The enemy uses discouragement to hinder God's work. The enemy uses discouragement to hinder God's work i got to tell you, the, the devil hates it if you have joy in the Lord. He does not want happy Christians. He doesn't like that. He wants us discouraged, beat up, on the sideline, not effective in ministry. Don't listen. That's his tactic. Look at the text, starting in... Ten through twelve it says thus in Judah it was said, The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. And when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you where you may turn. I have to give you a confession right up front. I'm weak. I get tired. I get frustrated. And sometimes I get discouraged. And I have another confession. You're weak. Sometimes you get tired. Sometimes you get discouraged. And the enemy wants that. And he wants us to live in that world. He does not want you to be bold, he doesn't want you trusting, he wants you running away from the Lord. Now, Nehemiah is faithful, and I want to begin with Nehemiah's foundation because it needs to be our foundation. His foundation is in the God of heaven. He's a man of God, and he puts his faith and his trust in the Lord because the Lord does not move. He is solid. And when events don't go Nehemiah's way, he doesn't fall apart. He runs on his knees to God. He becomes a prayer warrior. And you see this throughout the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to share with you again Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 4 and 5, because he hears this bad news and and it's disturbing to him that, that Jerusalem is in shambles. Listen to Nehemiah's prayer. He says, When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept, and I mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and the loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. So Nehemiah heard the discouraging words, He felt it emotionally. Where does he run? To the God of heaven. On his knees. That's his foundation. That needs to be our foundation. That's really what the book of Nehemiah is about. We have a God in heaven, and His work will go forward. We must depend on Him. That's where strength is. And when we're down, and I know that there are some this morning that have come in here discouraged. Given any Sunday is going to happen. Our foundation needs to be in place. But I want to ask you a question. Where is your foundation when it becomes difficult? Where do you run? Because some people run to other people because they're hoping they'll cheer them up. Some people run to drugs or alcohol because they want to kind of anesthetize the pain. Other people run to media, video games, movies, because they want to just kind of escape the reality. But for God's people... We need to run to the God of heaven. He's our Lord. And at any time, He is available. Now, there's a verse that I found that I think depicts who we're supposed to be and who Nehemiah is, and it's Romans chapter 12, verse 12. We should be rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Rejoicing in the hope that one day we will stand in the very presence of God, accepted and welcomed in. Persevering in tribulation because we have one who fights our battles with us and for us. And devoted to prayer. Running back again and again, daily, constantly. Prayer without ceasing. And the problem there, in that area of Jerusalem, is there were complainers. There were whiners. There were people that were complaining. These are are the Jews. They were God's people, but they're the ones who are causing the problem. They lost sight. They lost hope. They weren't persevering well. And it all started with discouraging talk. Verse 10 says that it all started with a certain group of people, and it was the people of Judah. Judah. Now, i got to tell you, as, as I first looked at that, I said, oh, wow, they just kind of lost hope. But then I began to dig a little bit, and do you know that there was actually something going on with the people of Judah? If you were to scroll forward to Nehemiah chapter 6, and I don't know if I had this on a screen, but Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, I want to read that to you. It says, also in those days, many letters went from the nobles to Judah to Tobiah, and to Tobiah's letter came to them. For many in Judah were bound by an oath to him. Because he was the son in law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and the son of Johanna, and married the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Bechariah. Basically, they had some kind of a, a contract or some kind of a financial connection, and Tobiah had something over them. And I think he's using some of them to come back and bring discouraging words. And sometimes that's the way the enemy works, isn't it? He, he, he's a, he, he uses tactics from the outside, and that's pretty much what we've seen, but he likes to worm his way in to where God's people are, and then he'll try to get to use God's people to disturb other people within God's community. Now, it's interesting with, with Judah, Judah is supposed to be the leader. They're supposed to be the strongest of the group of the Jews, In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob, he summons his sons, and right before he dies, he's going to bless them. In Genesis 49, 10, listen to what he says to Judah, his son. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. That word Shiloh means Messiah, that through Judah is going to come the Messiah. You're to be the one that sets the pace. You're to be the one that leads. You should be the strong one of all the people of Judah, but they're the ones that are bringing the discouraging words here in Nehemiah. And instead of lifting up, they're pulling them down. Look at verses 10 and 11. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. I have to tell you as a church, sometimes you don't realize that your words... And your attitude can have a major impact on others, particularly if they are discouraging words and a negative attitude that don't lift up and encourage but pull down and discourage people away from the Lord. What you say and how you say it matters to the people of God because you're a person of God if you know Christ. And God holds us accountable for our words, particularly discouraging words. Karen and I went with Pastor Neal, our senior pastor, when, we, when I first came on staff up to Mount Hermon to a pastor's conference. And there was a gentleman talking there. His name is H.B. London. Maybe some of you have heard him. He's the cousin of James Dobson. And he did this message. He entitled it Joy Suckers. Joy Suckers. And the reason he used that word As he said, he was a pastor, he had a thriving church, he said, but invariably, particularly on Sundays when he was preparing to preach, he had kind of this area where his study was and it was an outdoor walk to where the sanctuary was, and he said, invariably, as he's walking, getting ready, preparing his heart to preach, somebody would come up to him with discouraging news. Did you know the building, this is happening? Or did you know that message you said last week? I don't agree with you there. And he said, literally, they'd suck the joy right out of him, right before he had to share the word of God. He called them joy suckers. I love that message. That's why I remember it. We're not to be joy suckers, we're to be encouragers. But the people here in Judah, they were joy suckers. They were sucking the joy out of the people. They lost sight of the glory of God, they didn't think the work could get done. So, what were they doing? Verse 11, they were saying, The strength of those working is failing. There's too much rubbish, or rubble is really what it means. They're unable to build the walls. They're complaining, they're discouraging the people. It's too much for us. In verse 12, it says, When the Jews who lived near them came and told them ten times, there were others along with them. So there were some others that lived apart, and I think they were living actually near Sandbalat and the enemies, and they heard the discouraging words, and they bring it back not once, not twice, ten different times. They come back discouraging the people. They brought this discouraging news. And I know that this morning some of you have come in kind of broken, kind of down, and this week wasn't the best week, and things could have been better, and oh boy, oh boy. Have you run to the God of heaven? Have you stopped the one who does not move? Now Chuck Swindoll in his book, Hand Me Another Brick, He says there's four causes to discouragement. Now, in the context here, we see it with these people working on the walls, but we can easily apply this to our lives as well when it comes to discouragement. And the first one is fatigue, loss of strength. The people, they were kind of halfway through the work. Remember in verse 6 last time, they were halfway on the work on the walls. But they're getting tired. The work is getting harder. They're saying, you know, the the burden bearers is failing. Those who are doing the heavy lifting, they were suddenly becoming tired of the labor. And sometimes when you get physically tired, it impacts you. Because we're, we're both physical beings, but we also are emotional and spiritual beings as well. And when we fatigue physically, it impacts us emotionally and also spiritually, doesn't it? And so there's wisdom in knowing when and how to rest. When it comes to serving the Lord and not believe the lies, the the enemy loves to attack in this time when you're tired. And sometimes you might be tired just by doing good work. It's not bad work. It's good work for the Lord even. Chip Ingram says this. He says, fatigue doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It It just means that maybe you've done a little too bit much of what's right. It doesn't mean that you're out of the will of God. It just means that your body's tired. Your emotions are frazzled. And so sometimes in life, we push it so hard. I was talking to a brother today, and he was sharing with me how tired he was, just kind of, Poof, I'm done. And sometimes we have those weeks where it's a long stretch to the end, and those are times that the enemy likes to use. You're, you're fatigued. And it makes me think of Elijah, right? 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. Elijah he goes to the evil king Ahab and he says, "You know what? We're going to do a test here to see whose god is real. Is the Baal's god real or is Yahweh real?" And so he says, "Bring all the prophets of Baal." So 450 prophets go up to Mount Carmel. They get on top, right? They're going to do this thing. They're going to, they're going to each going to do a sacrifice unto the Lord and, and so first he gives them the right, the prophets of Baal, to go ahead and do this sacrifice. They they place the bulls on the sacrifice, they light the fire, they're doing all this kind of stuff. If God will accept that sacrifice, nothing happens. So he starts to kind of rib him. you know, well, where's your God? you got to do it more. So they start dancing around, they start cutting themselves, all kinds of stuff. And then he makes even more of a joke, he says, maybe your God is indisposed in the bathroom. Literally, the way it reads. Nothing happens. But then he does his sacrifice, and... He puts the bulls on, on the sacrifice. He, not only that, he, he puts wood around it, but he pours a lot of water on it to make it almost impossible to burn, and then he prays. You know the story. Fire comes down from heaven, literally wipes out the whole, takes the whole sacrifice up, even the water, licks it up. So all the people begin to worship the true and living God. That's chapter 18, glory to God. But then we move into chapter 19, and all of a sudden you see him and he's running from Jezebel. He's afraid. He's tired. Now the prescription that God gives him is one of rest. He basically tells him to stop, and a matter of fact, God provides food and water for him. God's prescription at that time was to pull back a little bit and wait and rest. So fatigue can cause dis- discouragement. That's the first one. The second one is a loss of perspective. You might call it a loss of vision. Again, in verse 10, the people were grumbling that there's too much rubble. Now, what's amazing to me in this statement is that the, the wall's halfway built, so half the rubble has gone, right? So there's less rubble, not more rubble, but they're saying it's too much rubble. So what happened in the beginning to this time was loss of perspective. They lost the vision that they could get it done. They lost the hope, and that often happens to us, particularly those of us that serve the Lord, and, you know, maybe you're working a job and serving the Lord both, and sometimes you get fatigued, and all of a sudden you kind of lose the vision of what you had really strong, maybe in the earlier days, and God's calling you back to that. Return to your first love. Don't lose the vision, because it can be done. And this is where Nehemiah is a master. He's, he always calls the people back to the vision. Fatigue, loss of perspective. The other one is loss of confidence. We might call it unbelief. They lost confidence. The difficulties kind of reveal reveal the depth of their faith. It's interesting, when Nehemiah first arrived and before they began this project, they were ready and willing, but now halfway through, they're no longer ready and willing. The fact is they actually don't believe they can do it anymore. One writer put it like this. He says, their focus went from upward and outward to inward and downward. I like that. They were fatigued, lost their perspective. They lost their confidence. Unbelief, by the way, is considered a sin. This is lack of trust, not in themselves only, but also in God. That God had the power to to move forward in the work that He had called them to. And this is why I kind of run to Paul in Romans Paul says this in Romans 8, 31 and 32. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, will he not also with him freely give us all things? The enemy's tactic is to have you not believe, to lose hope. He wants to stop you in the work, stop you from moving forward. Do not listen to him. Keep believing, even if you're tired. Don't lose perspective. And finally, the fourth one is a loss of security. The final cause of discouragement is is they they lost that sense of security that they once had. Verse 11 reads, our enemies said that they will not know until they see we come among them, kill them, and stop the work. This is a scare tactic used by the enemy to stop us. Now, there are many areas of, of security that we may have that really are not of the Lord. Some people, their security is your job, and your whole life is kind of built around your work. Very much this is the way oftentimes with men. What happens, though, if that job goes bye-bye? Your world crumbles. For other people, it might be a big bank account. As long as your bank account has those dollar signs in it, you're happy, but as soon as it gets below there, it kind of crumbles your faith. You've lost that sense of security. For others, it might just be familiar surroundings. You like everything in its place. You don't want things to change. Change bothers you a lot, by the way. Well, what happens when things do change because they always change, right? Suddenly, you're struggling. Again, where's your foundation? The foundation is in the God of heaven. Fatigue, perspective, unbelief. Where do you find your security? The enemy wants you discouraged. Don't believe him. We have one who fights the battles for us and with us. I read a story this past week about a man who lived in Kentucky, and he was 61, and he had uh, retired, and he's sitting on his porch, and the mailman comes up, and he goes down to the mail, and he gets his first Social Security check, and he opens the check. It's 1952. It was 105 bucks, and he looks at it, and he says, is this it? All these years of work and labor, it adds up to 105 bucks a month. Is that all I'm worth? And he got discouraged. Then he said, you know what, I'm not going to live in that discouragement. And and he he got a legal patent. He said, I'm going to think of all the things that I've done in my life. I mean, I'm not old. I I still have energy. Maybe I can do something still. And he started to write out things. And then he remembered the special recipe of fried chicken that his mother had. And he thought, Huh. He called a friend who owned a restaurant. He said, can I come there and can I just basically make chicken for your restaurant, this fried chicken, and test to see if it's any good? It became the number one item on the restaurant in just a few weeks. And so he says, well, I'm gonna go ahead and invest in this. And he bought it, found another little place. He bought a little restaurant himself and he started his first restaurant. And then he said, I'm gonna try something else. I'm gonna start multiple restaurants, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Then he sold it. 12 years later for millions of dollars because he did not stay discouraged. Now, now my point is not that you can become rich if you're not discouraged. That's not the point. (laughs) My point is the enemy doesn't want you to move. He wants you to stay discouraged. He doesn't want you successful in serving the Lord. That is the point because that is his weapon. So we've seen three, ridicule, intimidation. Today, we saw that first one, discouragement. Discouragement. Here's the last one, at least within this section of Nehemiah. It's fear. Fear. Because discouragement, that's where it often leads, is to fear. The number one command in the Old Testament is do not fear. The number one problem with God's people is anxiety and fear. God wants us to be free from that. Look at verses 11 and 12. Our enemies said they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. And when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place from where we may turn. If you, Remember what I said, the last cause of, of discouragement was a loss of security. This is where fear lies. Whatever you're depending upon more than the Lord... Is where you're going to find an area of fear in the enemy to get a foothold. Now, some became afraid because of verse 8 that we looked at last night. In Nehemiah 4 it says, All of them conspired together to fight against Jerusalem to cause a disturbance. They had remembered what Sambalat and his friends had said, and it caused them to be uncomfortable. Verse 11, talk was spreading, and they couldn't, they're talking about they wouldn't see the enemy coming. If that wasn't enough, you had these other Jews that were kind of living in the outskirts. They were coming in, and 10 different times, they were saying, we're going to be attacked, we're going to be attacked. And so that started to cause fear. Extreme anxiety. Now, the first inaugural address, in March 4th, 1933, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he said to a nation gripped in economic depression, the only thing to fear is fear itself. Now, that's kind of a partial true statement. I mean, there are things I think that, that you have a right to be afraid of. It's partially true. But this is what fear does it exaggerates truth. Fear takes something that may be difficult and maybe a little scary and it exaggerates it to the point that it paralyzes you, it stops you in your tracks from, from moving forward in faith. And the enemy, particularly the enemy of our soul, he does not want us to move forward in faith. So he wants you to live in anxiety and fear. He doesn't want you to live in boldness and faith. Anxiety and fear is his world. And anything he's going to try to do is to stop you, stop me from being bold with the gospel. And fear spreads, doesn't it? And I've seen it happen in this church gossip and talk, and people come afraid, and, and they think all kinds of things that aren't real. What is that? It's fear. It's not real. And I, I read the story. It's actually from Chuck Swindoll. had it in a book I read, but actually it's written by John Hagee. He said, a funny thing happened in Darlington, Maryland, several years ago. Edith, the mother of eight, was coming home from a neighbor's house one Saturday afternoon, And when she walked in her house, five of her youngest children were kind of huddled in the middle of the living room together. She kind of looked at that, and so she kind of snuck up on them quietly to see what it was. And when she looked over the children she looked in, they had a bunch of little skunks playing with them. And suddenly, in fear, she screamed, run, children, run. And each of the children grabbed a skunk, and they ran in different directions throughout the house. Well, that just freaked her out even more. She said, no, children, no. Well, they all stopped and squeezed the skunks. <laughs> skunks don't like to be squeezed. The fear spread, didn't it? it? Spread from the mother to the kids, from the kids to the skunks, and it stunk up that whole house with fear. And I think that's a good picture it is what happened here. It stunk up all of Jerusalem with fear. Fear spread. Fear spread. Everyone was frightened. And it reminds me of the, of the story in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus says, let's go over to the other side of the lake, Lake Galilee. They crawl on a boat, and Jesus is tired, lots of ministry. He crawls up on the back seat, falls asleep. And you know the story, suddenly there's a large storm. And they become so fearful that they wake him up. And Matthew 8, 25 verse 20 through 27 says, and they came to him, woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing And he said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up, rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And by the way, Mark 4 says in that last statement, says they became then very afraid of him. And that doesn't mean terror of him, that means holy awe of him. But what I want you to focus on, he says, why are you afraid, oh, you men of little faith? What fear does is it makes our great faith little faith, doesn't it? And if you're really terrified, it makes no faith. We no longer trust at all. And that is the enemy's tactic again. He does not want us bold. Fear is Satan's weapon to stop people from moving forward. Remember, he cannot have your soul But boy, if He can stop you from moving forward, and I've seen this so many times as a pastor because what I see is what keeps people from serving the Lord is often fear. I'm not gifted enough, talented enough. I don't have this grade. It's a lack of confidence in Him. I mean, He uses the weakest of us for His glory, right? I see this also in giving. People are afraid to give a tithe because they think, if I give a tithe, then I'm gonna be on the street pushing a cart, man. I can't be faithful to what God calls us to, to to give back to Him the very first fruits of faithfulness. I see this in evangelism. Somebody's going to say something that I don't know. Yeah, welcome to the club. Happens a lot, but that's okay. It makes people feel uncomfortable. You guys know all these? Makes people feel uncomfortable. Yeah, the gospel makes people feel uncomfortable, but it's good news. I'll get hurt. They'll hurt me. I've been on the street for over 26 years now sharing Christ. I never once have been touched. Only a couple times that people got a little bit upset. We live in America. It's still pretty good here. might be different in Vietnam or other places, but here we have it pretty good. But fear is destructive. And if you give in to it, it will stop you in your tracks. So we've seen those two things Last week we saw ridicule, intimidation. This, this week we saw discouragement and fear. So how do we fight back? Well, we're going to see in Nehemiah him fight back, and he fights back well. And what he does, how do we fight back? This is our third point. Remember the Lord. Realign your focus. Remember the Lord. Realign your focus. Discouragement and fear It blinds us to reality. It causes us to stop, to pull back. We need to realign our focus and move forward. Now, I want to look at the first three verses from 13 to 15 first. It says, Then I stationed men to the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places. I stationed the people and the families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke with the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord." Who is great and awesome, and fight with your brothers and sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. Now, Nehemiah, he does four things here to overcome discouragement. And the first thing he does is be proactive. Now, first of all, I want you to know he's a prayer warrior, and it doesn't speak about in this section that he's going to pray, but I, I guarantee you, he's praying. That is always his default. That's to be our default. First thing, you ask the Lord for his help, his strength, his guidance, opening of doors, those kind of things. I guarantee he's praying. But then he wants to get busy with the people. He wants to help them refocus first on God, then on God's work. He wanted to help them not be intimidated. Now, in verse, what's interesting, he says he's going to help them stand with who? Their families. Their families. That's wise, very wise. And it says that he, he, he puts the people in the exposed places in the wall. I'm thinking, why would he do that? He did that so the enemy would think, oh, they're not afraid. They're actually willing to be out in the open with us. They must have something going on. He's proactive. He unifies them in a common goal together. Focus on the work of the Lord. Focus on each other. Everyone is unified in a common purpose together to get God's work done. Now, here's a warning that you might be coming discouraged and even fearful. I don't want to read my Bible anymore because God doesn't speak to me anymore in the Word. I don't feel like praying because God never answers my prayers. I'm not going to go to church anymore because nobody's going to miss me in church. These are all things people have told me. God never uses me, so what's the point of serving? These are evidences, warnings that you're falling into discouragement and perhaps even fear. And what happens is we need to realign our focus on the Lord. And so what he does, he gets proactive, he realigns them. That's his first thing, he realigns your focus. Fight together with families. Serve the Lord. Second thing, remember who's on your team Remember who's on your team. Well, on their team is the great and awesome God, he says. And also, he puts them in families. What a wise thing. He puts them in families because you're going to die for your family. I mean, if there's a real battle on, you go neck to neck. You'll take it all the way to the end. And he understands. I'm putting them together in families because that's who they'll fight for most, is the ones they love most. Wisdom, so much wisdom. Remember who's on your team. We're part of a team. We're together in this. And that means in every situation, we have to realign our focus. Now, Paul puts it this way in Philippians 4.4. 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. In the fight, you can actually have joy. In this fight for faith, joy is available because if we realign our focus right, it's on the Lord and on those that we're serving with. Third thing, never stop fighting. Never Stop fighting. Never, ever give up. Verses 16 through 18, from that day on, half my servants carried on the work, while half of them held spears, shields, bows, breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. And those who were rebuilding, rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side and built while the trumpeter stood near. Nehemiah says right there, fight. Literally, carry a sword while you're putting bricks or whatever on the wall. As you're putting these rocks up, do that. And literally, I think he splits them in half. Half you guys guard, half you guys work, then shift. You guys now work, you guys now guard. And Paul, right before he dies in 2 Timothy, he says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, i fought the good fight, I've finished the faith, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith and in the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He, he went to the end fighting, even when he was in prison. By the way, faith is not a feeling. Faith is based on trust in truth. And truth is given us in the Word of God. And we, may, we move forward in faith. Okay, proactive. Remember who's on your team. Fight, fight, fight. Fight. Fourth, never fight alone. Never fight alone. This last section here, nineteen through twenty-three, Nehemiah has what we might call a backup feature. He's saying fight, and then he's saying, Don't do it alone though. Do it together. You're stronger together. Says I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. And at whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work, with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. And at that time also I said to the people, Let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem, so that they may guard for us by night and laborers by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes, and each took his weapon even to the water. So that when discouragement comes, when fear comes, we're to fight. But he says here, it's interesting, Chuck Swindoll said this, he said there, there should be a rallying point. I like that. He said in their rallying point, that means when there's a problem, everybody rallies to something or someone. And that really is a question for us, do we have a rallying point, someone that we can rally to? In your life, that when issues are heavy, Yes, you go to the Lord, but yes, you have people in your life you go to and say, I need prayer. I need people who are faithful and trusting, who will fight with me, alongside me. You don't fight alone. That's the point. We're in it together. You see this throughout Scripture. I'm just thinking of David with Jonathan, Paul, and many people that he worked with and served with. Jesus had 12 disciples. Don't fight alone. I think of the ministries we have in this church. That's why we have home fellowships, so that people will develop tight relationships for go-to people, these rallying points. That's why we have, in the women's ministry, one-to-one discipleship, why we've developed discipleship in the men's ministry. Why? So there are people you can trust through prayer. Because the Bible says that the weapons formed against us will not stand. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon that is formed against us will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is for me, declares the Lord. Our strength is in Him, but we don't have to do it alone. And so, even though there's discouragement, and even though sometimes we fear, we are part of God's family now, part of His people. And we're called to stand and fight together. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful for this teaching in Nehemiah. So grateful for the work of the Lord. So so grateful for Your Spirit helping us, strengthening us. Each of us, Lord, in our flesh are weak. Each of us, if we're honest, often fail. But we're so thankful that You are our foundation, our rock, and You do not move, and You come alongside, and You build up, and You encourage. Help us, Lord, even now, our own church, to be faithful to the call that is upon us. Let us watch and be amazed as You move forward in power and strength and might for Your glory. And you give us the privilege to serve alongside others, Lord. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I please have you stand? I'd like to end it this morning really with a prayer. Really for those of you that have come in this morning kind of beat up. It's been a tough week, a tough month, maybe a tough year. And what you need to do is realign that focus back to the Lord, and that's what I'd like to do for us this morning as a church. And we'll come before God honestly now. And just offer up to Him a prayer of thanks and a prayer asking for His strength and help. Amen? So let's bow our heads together and I'll pray. Father, Together, each of us, Lord, have different times, seasons, really, where the battle's more intense, where life seems all too hard. But Lord, I'm so grateful, from the teaching even here in Nehemiah, that we can run to the God of heaven, that we can come to You, Lord, in prayer. And Lord, prayer is powerful, it is the weapon. That is not carnal, Lord, but it's powerful in God. And Lord, you use these moments when we turn our hearts to you to help us, to move us forward, Lord, in faith. Not so that we'll stay still and stuck, but that we'll trust you with all that we are because of all that you are. And so, Father, help us. Everyone here, particularly those, Lord, that have come in this morning discouraged and maybe even fearful, would you lift them up, lift them out, God, of that dark place? Would you minister by your Spirit the joy of the Lord? And will you be our strength? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.